Welcome back to The Queer Chaos. I'm your resident host and admirer of haunted dolls, John Malitris. On this show, I'm bringing you the good news from the margins. We're here, we're queer, I love you Udo Kier. I've got quite a packed show for you today, so let's jump right on into the eye of the pink storm. My first guest today is award-winning queer scholar, curator, speaker, and author of When Brooklyn Was Queer, and the upcoming title, The Prison on Christopher Street, a queer history of the women's house of detention on Christopher Street. You know I love me some queer history, and let me tell you, When Brooklyn Was Queer did not disappoint. Following you, I'll be chatting with the bougie bruja Justin Taylor, who stops by to unpack three polarizing cards in the tarot deck, the devil, death, and the tower. Check out the show notes wherever you get your podcasts for info on how to find these folks in the virtual ether. Let me know you love Queer Chaos with a follow on Instagram at Queer Chaos Pod. Sharing the show on your socials and what really gets me going is a review on Apple Podcasts. Oh, and a follow of the show wherever you get your pods. Reviews on Apple help others find the show by doing something weird and funky with the algorithms that I will not attempt to understand. Lastly, I'm looking for your queer stories of failure. One of the things we're pushing against on this show is the dominant cultural idea of success. Queer chaos rallies around those queer attempts that didn't quite work out in the way we had intended. Check out the prompt at the end of this episode for more information. Now, time for the queer chaos. So hi to Hugh Ryan. Welcome to Queer Chaos. We are, we are embracing chaos here on a daily basis with technology, with the climate, with the, just the weather itself. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm always shocked when anything on the internet actually works. So I think that it's good to just admit that it's chaos rather than, you know, that thin veneer of everything is perfect that you get every time you sign on to a Zoom and then the first 10 minutes are spent going, hold on, no, wait, just, uh, nope, you're on mute, you're on mute, you're on mute, right. you're still on mute, you're st- nope, now you're gone. I mean, truly, I love that lens, just going in, going in, thinking that it's not going to work and then and then being like, you know, pleasantly surprised when things go right. Oh my God, that is the best introduction <laughs> to my career anyone has ever given. <laughs> I'm pleasantly surprised I got a paycheck this week. It's been great. (laughs) Going in in complete chaos and waking up pleasantly surprised. What more can you ask for in life, frankly? (laughs) Yeah. Could you introduce yourself to everyone listening? Absolutely not. Just not. Thank thank you. This has been great. (laughs) I'm bringing the chaos. (laughs) Uh, My name is Hugh Ryan. I'm a queer historian and author and curator. Uh, My first book was called When Brooklyn Was Queer. It's the first ever LGBTQ history of New York City's most populous borough. 
which is really hard to say. And it's taken me about three years to get it down without fucking it up. Uh, and I'm currently working on a new book, which is about a women's prison that used to be located in Greenwich Village. Oh. And um, when Brooklyn Was Queer won the 2019 New York City Book Award? It did. The Society Book Society Library Book Society. Award, which was a really wonderful thing. I felt so oh. fancy. Oh, uh, Salon, They're the oldest Society. library in New, oldest still operating library in New York City. They're really fabulous. Oh, where is where is that? You know, all of this happened during COVID that I won it, so I have never been, oh, but I know it's in Manhattan. <laughs> right. I As mean, with anything could... that's happened in the last two years, uh, I haven't been there. And the previous ten years before that, I probably didn't go, but I didn't have an excuse. So I'm pretty happy about that part of the pandemic. Speaking of which, how was your pandemic? Well, I spent it basically all inside this tiny little box of an office that you've seen, which has been wonderful. I have to say that I was truly blessed and lucky and fortunate at the start of this. You know, I was working on a new book and I had just gotten to a place where I was pretty much done with my research and needed to hunker down and start writing. And then the pandemic happened. And so I was able to keep working on my projects. I was not interrupted like a lot of historians that I know. Uh, I have a wonderful house and great partners. And uh, I truly, really was absolutely lucky. I was very sick at the beginning of the pandemic, very briefly. I think Mm. maybe I had COVID. I don't know. I'm vaccinated. My family's vaccinated. I lost a few relatives, unfortunately, um, midway Mm. through the pandemic. And that was quite rough. Um, But I personally have to say I have been so lucky. Uh, How about you? Um, Yeah, it's it's been unlike anything else. <laughs> um, I was very fortunate to not have contracted COVID. Um, I'm vaccinated. Um, I, it, it is, it has really felt like a time for incubation for reorienting myself to many things, creativity, um, relationships, life. It really forced me into um, to do some deep fucking work on on those shadowy aspects mm-hmm. of myself. <laughs> um, it's been it's been interesting. Um, yeah, and it's been and and you know coming back to your book, you know, a history of queer Brooklyn. Is I, I'm I'm curious about how this pandemic might show up in a queer history down the road. I wonder if you have an opinion about that. You know, it's interesting. I've had a number of people ask me what I think is going to happen. Are we about to emerge into some moment of incredible opening that we're going to be missing public space so much that, you know, we're going to see a rash of new queer bars opening up around the country and and new in-person events. Uh, And part of me hopes that that is true, but I suspect that it is not. I have to admit that my suspicion is that what this pandemic has done for us mostly has really pushed us to create virtual spaces and ways of working virtually and digitally that we did not have before, which are not going to take over entirely, obviously. But I think once Mm -hmm. those pathways are built, it's going to be a little easier to use them. We're going to see the good as well as the bad in them. So I think what we're going to start to see is more virtual events, uh, more Zooms, more things that bring together really disparate geographic queer communities, but not as much um, geographically located queer stuff Mm -hmm. as pre-pandemic. But I think we were already on that trend before the pandemic started. So I think that while there's going to be like a 
a momentary blip and reshuffle where some bars close and some other kinds of spaces close and coffee shops close and then some new things reopen. We're experiencing that right now in Brooklyn. Uh, a couple of new bars have opened up that are, you know, uh, queer bars in usage. I don't know if they identify themselves that way. I have mm -hmm. the bar's identity. Um, but I am seeing new spaces open up. But I, I do think that likely we're going to see a greater transition to virtual stuff. We were headed in that direction. I think this just speeded us up. Yeah. You know, friend of, friend of the podcast, Dusty Childers, I don't know if you're familiar with Dusty, hmm. um, was telling me the other day about how, um, you know, these impromptu improvised queer Brooklyn parties are are popping up in outdoor spaces. Um, people are people are bringing their Bluetooth speakers and putting on some drag shows and like parks. One of them is called It's the Vale of Kashmir. Kashmir, yeah, that was one of the spaces. Um, what kind of so party is popping up in the Vale of Kashmir? Because that place has a quite interesting history. Um, there's a a party. Um, I know that Charlene, iconic queen of mm -hmm. of the borough um was maybe had some hand in organizing that um but now that you've mentioned the history of the bell cashmere i need to know about this <laughs> oh it's only one of the most infamous cruising grounds in all of Brooklyn's history <laughs> uh, which i think is hilarious that its real name is the Vale of cashmere i mean why not just call it cocksuckers grove I mean, they wanted this to happen right because um, society <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, as soon as like World War II ended, you, we start getting complaints to the local Park Slope uh, Police Department about men cruising for sex inside the Vale of Kashmir. And it has been that way ever since. Uh, and is this is this term like this title Vale of Kashmir? Does it come out of that cruising culture? Nope, that is the official name given to that area oh. of the park by uh, <laughs> Frederick Olmsted and uh, Olmsted Box. <laughs> Was she a friend of the family? <laughs> One can only assume. But, you know, it was also like a, a previous era where people like gave all of these like very romantical names to things. You know, everything was a whimsy right. and a folly. And the Vale of Kashmir itself is like a series of little pools with fountains inside them, tucked inside the park. And um, mm -hmm. if not intended for cruising, it was still built, built very well for it. Right. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever actually been there, although I have um, the first place that I lived when I moved um, to New York City. New York City was Williamsburg in Brooklyn. But at that time, Williamsburg was felt a little bit more industrial and a little underdeveloped. And I mm. lived off of McKibben in the McKibben like warehouse lofts. Which oh, my God, become... the McKibben lofts, the hipster hives. Yeah. Wait, when did you live there? This was back in. 2002 or 2003 through like five i was there for a couple of couple of years maybe two and a half years but this okay. was really before there was anything there we had one sort of very tiny organic like <laughs> grocery store and then there was a there was a dvd store somewhere around there um and actually, in that DVD store is where I discovered Benjamin Smoke, who um, was sort of an underground musician, artist um, coming out of Atlanta and had a fascinating story. And I believe J um, Justin Vivian Bond may have done a, um, some type of performance dedicated to the songs of Benjamin Smoke 
maybe at, really? at, at Joe's pub at some point or somewhere. Um, My but yeah, but boyfriend at that time lived in the McKibben lofts. Now we're going to have to oh. play like connections and see. Did you happen to know someone named Joe Holbrook by any chance? I not. You know what? I don't remember a lot from that time. Period. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, my my right. memory is very spot. My memory is very spotty. However, I John Cameron Mitchell came over um, because at that time they were scouting locations for short bus, and they were uh. they were eyeing my particular unit to do that long shot across the warehouse through the windows. I believe into there was a gay cisgender male couple in it. Um, and they were having a sexual moment. They were shooting through the window, something like, or there was like a voyeur moment. But my 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 loft was being scouted for that um, that particular scene. But I don't remember a lot of people's names. I just remember some people. I don't even remember their names. But I remember the neighbor across um, from me in the hall was so emo <laughs> that they that. They had painted all of their walls black, like a midnight black color. Um, it, it was truly like a uh, uh, going in there. It was like going into a black hole. Wow. <laughs> Just like you're bringing boy. me back to like early two thousands <laughs> Brooklyn. Like a, this is a real history lesson, uh, yeah. one that no one is interested in, but I find really you know emotionally satisfying. <laughs> but that's that's amazing. Your partner was in those lofts at that time, and you know the L train never fucking worked. Oh, no, no. The L train was like a nightmare back then. <laughs> I mean, the only thing worse was the JMZ. <laughs> the L right. was not good. Yeah. And of course, I was, I didn't have a car at that time. And I was fucking with someone that was living in Astoria. So that was quite, quite the, um, like 20 layovers later, mm-hmm. um, 20, 20 time zones later, um, three, you'd have to plan, plan that, that, that hookup three days in advance. <laughs> and if you didn't have like a book on you or something for that subway ride, that was two hours of staring at the different uh, Manhattan mini storage ads and wondering about their use of the semicolon. It was monstrous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, hey, I have to admit the good trade. Some of that good trade was in Astoria <laughs> at that particular time. <laughs> yes, that's when I was new to the city. You know, I grew up uh, outside the city. My parents are from the Bronx, um, but I was new to the city at that point. And I, so I went everywhere. You know, like it was I was living in, in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. but I was often going up to Queens and to the Bronx. I even went to Staten Island twice. Uh, now I feel like, oh my God, if I leave the apartment, that's a, a red letter day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I want to, I want to talk about this book. Um, I, I am just fascinated with LGBTQ plus cultures, histories. Um, like when I lived in LA, you would find this bitch in one archives regularly. I was like, I wanted to just look through everything. I wanted to kind of take it all in. And um, your book is just so exquisitely crafted, but but you can kind of tell the, um, you can read just like how much you care about this history and like the attention to detail. And then of course, I always think with, with these histories, like what really pulls me in is like the way the narrative is crafted. Like it doesn't read like, a, a sort of a catalog because like mm-hmm. histories that read like a catalog to me like although i do love 
content. <laughs> I love historical markers. It's hard for me to kind of like keep myself engaged with it. But this was the when Brooklyn was queer it was quite easy to be engaged with. And just fucking fascinating. There are things in the book moments like Coney Island, which I haven't thought about since I lived in Brooklyn. And I just and to think about it in a new perspective where it really does kind of become this stomping ground that maps queer culture um, in such a way is just fascinating to me. Thank you. I mean, I agree. You know, Coney Island is one of those places that I've gone to my whole life, but didn't really think about its history. When I first started going, it was, you know, disreputable and on its last legs. And I was a child. <laughs> it was the 80s. Um, but now, I mean, disreputable knowing, on your last legs is, I mean, that's going to be what people are calling me in a few years. <laughs> I was going to say, now knowing that it was always disreputable and on its last legs, or not always, but mostly, you know, gives me a sense of connection to its history. But I agree with you. I think that it is a love for me that I do this out of. And for me, that means that when I am writing about these people and I, I think of them as people, I want to tell the story in a way that is emotional and that will make other people care about the story and will sort of honor these folks who came before us. Because I think the best way to remember history, not maybe necessarily uh, every detail, but to get the broader implications and the important uh, stories inside the history is to tell it through individuals, to follow individual people having real lives because their lives are always more nuanced than one would imagine. And they're always more interesting and they capture our imagination and they give narrative to what otherwise can be dry, as you said, lists of examples. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just like this, this work is so vital to our community um, and our culture because, you know, I always feel like in Western society, we're projecting into the future most of the time. It's just the way that we're sort of oriented. Um, and we often forget about the present. We forget about the past. And yet, we're so affected by it. And I don't think people that go about their daily basis necessarily realize how much transgenerational material is affecting them as they move about the world, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there are so many things that not only are affecting us, but, you know, things that we think are are of the past or in the past that are actually still um, functional ideas in the world today, just maybe slightly rebranded and things that I don't ever before writing this really thought about at all, you know, like what does the structure of a highway do to a neighborhood? You know, how does urban planning affect the way we live our lives? And those mm -hmm. things became really important as I was researching the queer history of Brooklyn in part to do exactly what you're saying, to, to turn it not just into a list of examples, but to start to say like, why do certain things happen in certain times? I often say, you know, I don't know how your history teaching went, but when I was in public school, I was taught history like a list of names and dates to remember. Oh yeah, look so at this timeline. <laughs> There was nothing about how one thing caused the other thing to happen. It was almost like, like if we taught math the same way we taught history, it would be called counting. And all you would do was learn what the numbers are, right? Not the relationships between them. And when I read, when I started doing this research, I had to figure that out. I had to say to myself, why do certain things move and chart the way that they do and the times that they do? What are the things that are causing us to change the way we identify or the way we live as queer people? And how are those things related to the spaces that we're in, right? How is Brooklyn, the city, creating Brooklyn's own queer community? And how is the queer community in turn creating Brooklyn? Mm -hmm. 
Well, you know, that makes me actually think of chaos theory itself is, is this idea of the butterfly effect is that this one, this one microcosmic moment reverberates on a much larger scale, you know? Yeah. 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 I think it's true that there are always going to be unanticipated, you know, uh, part of my book at the end, I talk a lot about Robert Moses and all that he did to the city. And, you know, it's it's really easy to dunk on Robert Moses and with good reason, because he was terrible in many ways. Many people have asked me, oh, so he was homophobic, right? And I'm like, yeah, you know, actually, I have no evidence of that. There's a good chance. It seemed more like he did tons of damage to queer communities in New York City, but without ever considering them. Like, it wasn't a goal. It was mm-hmm. like a, somewhere between a collateral damage and a bonus, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, it, it had huge ramifications, completely unanticipated on queer people. Right. And will you tell everyone who Robert Moses is, just oh, yeah. so they have a little bit of location? Uh, Robert Moses is often referred to as the power broker because of Robert Caro's famous biography of him, the power broker, was a New York City unelected official, right? He never ran for office. He never got uh, voted in. Instead, he was kind of a, a behind the scenes. At one point, he held something like, 12 different appointed titles in the city government at the same time. And these were major titles too. It was like the head of slum clearance, uh, the head of, you know, the public housing at one point, he did all of these things. And he really used his power to recreate the city. He really understood. He loved New York city, the city, and he really hated the people who lived in it, particularly the poor ones. And he had this idea Mm. that you could reorient New York and make it a city based around car culture for rich people. So all the highways that we have, he built all of those. The fact that all of the Brooklyn waterfront is cut off from the rest of the city by a string of highways, the BQE and all of that, that's Mm -hmm. all Robert Moses. And those were all built so that he could connect the emerging post-World War II suburbs in Long Island and Westchester, et cetera, to Manhattan. So it was to move rich people from one area to another area for rich people. And this was on purpose, right? He actually constructed the parkways on Long Island so that they were too short for New York City buses to go under them so that poor people couldn't get to the new beaches that were being built on Long Island, right? (sighs) He very much consciously reconstructed the city. He uh, hated uh, tunnels and loved bridges because he thought bridges were more beautiful and tunnels, although easier and cheaper to build, were not as attractive to have one's name on, you know? So Mm -hmm. we get a lot of bridges instead of a lot of tunnels. And he just does all of this incredible stuff that really changes the city in major, major ways, but also in ways that he never anticipated. Mm -hmm. Right. So maybe you could tell me how, so why Brooklyn? So like what, um, maybe you could tell me a little bit about your background of what brought you to Brooklyn itself and to look into queer Brooklyn history. Yeah. Uh, So it actually started uh, in 2010. I don't know if you remember, there was an exhibit at the Smithsonian called Hide, Seek, Difference and Desire in American Portraiture. It was their first ever LGBTQ. Yeah. So that exhibit happened and I was living in Brooklyn. And in October of 2010, there was this big sort of right wing hoopla over the exhibition because of a number of pieces, but it centered Mm -hmm. around a video that was kind of a work by David Wernerovich. It had actually been recut and re-edited by someone else. So there's a whole other level to this that we won't even get into right now. But anyway, let's just say there was a protest over a work by an artist named David Wernerovich, which was immediately pulled from the show. Like the Smithsonian just rolled right over without even talking to the curator. 24 hours later, the work was out of the show. 
This sparked protests around the country. Soon, that piece, A Fire in My Belly, became the easiest of David Warnerovich's pieces that you could see anywhere. And all these people were protesting the censorship at the Smithsonian. And I was involved with that. And there was just like one moment, all of a sudden, like one day, where I was like, wait, why am I protesting the removal of a single piece of queer art from the first queer show in the Smithsonian and not protesting the fact that I can't see any fucking queer shows in New York City right now? Uh, there was a woman named Wima Perry who did this great research piece on uh, major New York City museums and LGBT content and just found that they had done a terrible job over the past like 15 years. There really was no museum that was out there on the forefront showing queer work in a queer lens in New York City. And I got really mad. So I was living in this big loft space. These people asked us if they could use it to throw a party for this week of queer events that were happening in the city called Quorum. Queers uniting and organizing for radical mobility, I think was the, you know, Quorum was the name and then they figured out what it meant. Uh, so we had this big apartment. There were a lot of us that lived in it. And my roommates and I were all, you know, now we were in our 30s and my roommates were like, no, we don't want to host this goddamn party. And I was like, I will host this party on one condition. I don't want to be a party. I want to be a pop-up museum a pop-up queer museum. And they were like, what does that mean? And I said, I don't know, but we will figure this out. And my idea was just that I wanted to see what it would be like to have queer exhibits for queer people in a queer space where we could not be kicked out if the work was too in your face or uh, if we needed to use a bathroom that you know people did not want us inside. I wanted to see queer history told by queer people for queer people. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what the reception was gonna be. The first, uh, I put out this call, 30 people made exhibits, which I was shocked by. And then 300 people showed up to my apartment to see them. And that was insane. People couldn't fit in the door. The cops ended up getting called. We ended up getting shut mm. down at midnight by 12 plainclothes cops. And all these people were like, oh my God, when is the next show? What are you going to do? And I was like, I threw a party. This was not a nonprofit. Mm. Like I was just like playing around. But the, the response was so great that I was like, oh, oh. Speaking of chaos, I was like, this is a thing. People want this. I'm not the only one. And not only did people want to see queer history, but adults like you and I who went through a school system where we never had a chance to do those kind of projects where you dig deeply into a topic that you care about and get to share it with each other. They wanted that experience. Mm -hmm. History, I think, we learn as much history in teaching it as we do in receiving it. And that was one of the things this, this pop-up museum was going to do. We're going to create spaces for people to learn history, but also people to tell history. We started doing shows around the country. And we realized very quickly we had this idea. We'll work with local communities, bolster what they have inside, help them fundraise to make exhibits in their community based on what their community wants to see with us acting as these people who brought in queer history from the outside. So... This is a very long story, but I swear to God, I'm getting to your question. We do a bunch of these shows. We do them around the country. It's great. People are into it. In, in Philly, we get this huge response about Philly queer history when we put out a call for proposals. Mm. In Bloomington, Indiana, we get a huge response about Bloomington, Indiana queer history when we put out a call for proposals. We come back to Brooklyn and we're like, we know what we're doing now. We're going to do a Brooklyn show. It's going to be on Brooklyn's queer history. We put out the call for proposals and it was like crickets. Like nobody oh. had anything to say. We got a couple things and they were all pretty generic. It was like, there were basically three things that people pointed out. Park Slope had lesbians. At some point, <laughs> nobody knew why, but they were there. <laughs> there was sex in Prospect Park. Again, nobody mm. knew why or when it started, but it was there. And there was this vague idea 
that the Brooklyn Navy Yard during World War II female factory workers has to be gay somehow. You know, that, that was like basically what we got. And it was this weird and shocking moment where I suddenly looked like at the proposals and at myself and was like, wait a second. I have lived in Brooklyn for, you know, 10 years at that point. My family is from New York City. I grew up in the suburbs. I was doing these queer historical shows. I was really invested in this topic. And I didn't know anything about Brooklyn's queer history. And that was the moment where I was like, wait a second. Either we're dealing with one of two situations. Either there is a vast, unacknowledged queer history to Brooklyn that I really want to dig into. Or queer people are like vampires and we can't cross moving water and all of our queer history is stuck in Manhattan. And either way, this was going to be interesting. So that was kind of my opening question was just like, where is this history? And truly, I make a joke about it. But I did think, you know, the relationship between Manhattan and Brooklyn is a special one. And perhaps it's possible that, yes, of course, queer people are everywhere, every when, but -hmm. that our public queer lives, perhaps for certain reasons, were lived more in Manhattan than in Brooklyn, and that that would be the first thing that I would find. And that was the reason we weren't getting a lot of responses to these proposals. Of course, that is not what I found. Instead, I found an entire fucking book's worth of history. In fact, much more than ever made it into that book did I find. Mm -hmm. But the initial place for me was a place of true ignorance, of realizing that there was this hole in our knowledge, and that that hole felt unnatural, right? Not that I was looking at a place where queer people weren't, but I was looking at a place where we just didn't know anymore what had actually happened. And that, for me, was an exciting realization because that meant that there were stories that hadn't been told and stories that felt important to me that needed to be told. And so that's often how I do my work is I kind of dig into my own ignorance. I find the spot where it feels like something is missing that I should know. And then I dig into why I don't know it and what there is to be known or if there isn't anything to be known, why there isn't something to be known. Um, I know that that sounds a little silly to say that because... I think many people expect a historian to be an expert, but my work comes out of ignorance as much as it does out of expertise. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Philly because Philly was actually where I grew up um, and Philadelphia was my coming out town, so to speak. Um, and I started going out in Philadelphia at 16 years of age, which would have been 1993. Okay. Um, and, and, of course, you know, like all cities, there's like diasporas of different cultures within the culture and things like that. And at that particular time, the the lesbians were on fire. Like there were there was this this big club called Sisters, and I I was hanging out with the lesbians. There was like a huge. It just felt like a big lesbian culture there. And then you had a lot of like you you had a very um visible leather community. Mm. There a lot of leather bars in Philadelphia, and then there were like the kind of like maybe tail end of a sort of like a punk culture that was like hanging out around like South Street, like a queer punk culture that was also kind of filtrating into like other pockets of like the Philadelphia neighborhood. But like that's those three different communities was how I kind of like saw like Philadelphia queer culture at that time. And now mm-hmm. I don't even recognize it. Like I don't know <laughs> what it is. <laughs> Hilariously, my first real introduction to New York City's <sighs> queer culture, there were kind of two. When I was in high school, my friend Patty and I would take the train into the city occasionally because she would have to go visit her parents. Her parents uh, ran a bodega. Uh, and I did not know it at the time, but that bodega was on Christopher Street. 
and Christopher Street meant nothing to me. But when we went to go visit, I was like, you know, I was still not fully out. I was coming mm-hmm. out. I was 16. I was 15. And I was just sort of like terrified and excited. Like I had stumbled into something and I wasn't sure anyone else noticed, you know, like I, did, I had no idea I had stumbled into like literally one of the oldest neighborhoods in America. I just felt mm-hmm. like, oh God, there are suddenly gay people everywhere. And this means something. And I'm not sure what it means, but it's exciting and terrifying. And then a couple of years later, in like 1996, I went out for the first time to one of like the big mega clubs in the city, kind of the last mm. gasp of club kid culture before Giuliani came in. My first club was a prom night for teens, for underage teens at Club Exit. It was crazy and insane. And club I loved exit. it. It club was a great exit, club. It was I not a gay. Right. Okay. But from then on, once I realized that that existed, I was like, no, 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 there are gay versions of this. This I can find. And so then it was like yeah. Twilo and Limelight and Tunnel and Roxy and Esquilita and like all the huge dance clubs. And I am a fucking hermit who has not been out like for a night on the town in like <laughs> a decade. So it's like funny to me to imagine this version of myself where my only experience in queer New York was showing up at parties at 10 o'clock because you got there before 11, you got in for free and then staying there till 4 a.m. Because if you left and you went outside, you'd have to pay to come back in and then going to sleep on the steps inside Grand Central until the first trains opened up at like 6 a.m., which, you know, post 9-11 was not illegal. But that was my version of queer New York when I first was coming out. Right. You know, speaking of a million miles away. (laughs) Yeah. Um, speaking of the lesbians, you sort of you you bring into the book um, queer women in theater and performance cultures, and like immediately, like I think I think of Holly Hughes, I think of um, Split mm. Riches, I think of of these wonderful, you know, queer women in in performance and theater, um, and then I also think about about how how theater and performance communities really kind of did like a lot to shape queer culture especially in urban urban settings like i i can't tell you how many times i saw um oh gosh what's the movie with flawless sabrina that i'm I'm... the queen the queen yeah i wanted to say the wig i was like i can't be the wig (laughs) and i just literally just saw that movie maybe a couple of weeks ago but yeah but just like yeah, can you can you share um a little bit about queer women in theater and performance and how it's sort of shaping queer Brooklyn? Sure. I mean, you go back to the 19th century, the late 19th century, and theatrical culture moving from city to city and newspapers are really America's mass culture, right? So they're defining the world. The end of the 19th century is kind of the end of the Victorian era. We have this period where, like, you know, men are expected to spend all their time with men and women are expected to spend all their time with women. And as that breaks down at the end of the 19th century, we get a lot of uh, entertainment that plays with gender, right? Because that becomes salacious and exciting and fun and scary. And it's a huge world of what we would today recognize as drag. It was called female and male impersonation, but there was a ton of that in the late 19th century. You could see more drag kings in Brooklyn in the 1890s than you could in the 1990s Mm. by a lot. They wouldn't have used the term drag king. I want to be very clear. I'm being anachronistic when I use that, but it's it's pretty pretty comparable in certain ways. Um, 
But we're getting a lot of these kinds of performances. And beyond that, we're also getting a lot of women who are performing in venues where they wouldn't even have been allowed inside them, right? The early vaudeville culture, our early American stage culture that is not just brought over from European stage culture is coming out of disreputable bars in working class neighborhoods where women were often not allowed. And when they started to be allowed in like New York City and Brooklyn in like the 1860s, the 1870s, we get these laws passed saying like waitresses are illegal because they're too salacious, you know? Mm. Um, ballet is an incredibly disreputable art that happens in like really working class bars because women wore tight clothes and you could see them, right? It's a different world. And within that world, these female performers, whether or not they identified as queer in the ways we would think of it today, they were seen as violating the laws of gender merely by what they did, right? Their job, the very fact that they had a job and that they presented themselves on the stage already made them suspect. So actors in general are a suspect class. And once you're a suspect class, it becomes much easier to sort of flirt with and move beyond the laws of what is normal or what is moral or what is allowed in many, many ways. And then to bring that around the country. So we get all of these women uh, who, so far as we know, identified as women, though I think there's a lot to be dug into there about you know the transition between 19th century ideas of what it meant to be queer and 20th century ideas of what it meant to be queer. But mm-hmm. women like John Stone Bennett, who was a huge performer in the 19th century in the legitimate theater. She was taking on uh, breeches roles. She was wearing pants. She wore very, very tailored outfits outside off the stage and sometimes even slacks and she smoked and she inspired armies of girls across the country. They were called Mm. tailor-made girls to wear those kind of butch clothing, right? These gender troubles, those happen because these women brought their culture around the country. And Johnstone Bennett is a particularly fascinating one because we know, thanks to a book called The Stone Wall, which is the autobiography of an early uh, American lesbian in the sort of like late 19th and early 20th century, we know that Johnstone Bennett was actually queer and connected to a huge world of queer women that she moved between in New York, in San Francisco, and in the other cities that she went to. So these entertainers had roles that most women did not have in public, right? So that they could Mm -hmm. define culture for other people. They traveled the country in ways that most people did not. They had the money to live how they wanted to, and they had the simultaneous publicity and privacy that comes with being a celebrity that allowed them to affect the culture in these major ways. That's just going back to the 19th century. Obviously, you go on from there, as you were saying, in the 20th century, we get to start to see queer women performers like we think of them today. Uh, I saw Holly Hughes at a Creating Change conference, I want to say in Philly in like 1996. She was incredible, you know, Mm -hmm. Blit Britches still working today, still doing amazing stuff. And we've got, obviously, celebrities like, um, you know, and of course, now my name is blank. My mind is blank because I never remember anything from the present day. I spend my entire life IMDBing people whose names I shouldn't know. Uh, I was about to name the woman from SNL who's in Ghostbusters, Kat Kate McKinnon. There we go. Oh, yeah. We get, you know, these incredible lesbian performers today. Um, But that's true as far back as we have the theatrical tradition in America. Right. Oh, I should also have mentioned at the beginning of this that when asked a question, I go off on a really long tangent for a long time. I love it. It comes back to where we started, but it doesn't always. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. You know, speaking of, you know, Stonewall, how did how did Stonewall 
reverberate through the Brooklyn queer community? You know, it's funny. I'm not a great person to ask that because my book ends in 1969. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, but I will say this. From the people that I talked with, there was a definite separation between the idea of the queer community, uh, the younger queer community that was really uh, involved with Stonewall and was a part of the activism that kind of came after it. When I spoke to a few Stonewall vets, they said to me, you were aware of the queer community that was in Brooklyn, particularly the one in Brooklyn Heights, but it seemed dayed almost suburban. You know, you would check it out to know what it was, but it wasn't exactly the most exciting thing. Now, in the early 70s, there's definitely a, a gayberhood, a mostly gay men's, but not entirely gayberhood, that springs up in Brooklyn Heights around Montague Street. There has been a queer sort of neighborhood in that area going back, you know, 100 years. But we get this very, like, what you would imagine in the 1970s as a gayborhood. There's a bunch of gay bars. There's even a leather bar. Briefly, there's a men's bathhouse that opens up called Men's Country mm -hmm. before it moves to Midtown. Um, but it's a little separate, a little more suburban, maybe a little more closeted. Not entirely, because, of course, this is still New York City, but it's not quite as wild and exciting as mm -hmm. what's happening in Manhattan. And then you still have the sort of lingering little bits of a queer community in Coney Island, but that's mostly forgotten about by this point. It's too dangerous. Most queer out queer people at that time will tell you, oh, it was too dangerous to go to Coney Island. And you're just starting to get in 69, kind of the nascent early threads of the black queer community that's going to emerge in Crown Heights, sort of where the Starlight Lounge uh, opens up. Uh, you're not quite yet getting the beginnings of the dyke culture that will start in Park Slope in kind of the late 70s and early 80s, but we're we're heading in that mm -hmm. direction. Um, so Stonewall definitely has its reverberations in Brooklyn, obviously, but that period is kind of the, the nadir, I would say, of Brooklyn's queer community as an organized, visible public community. The mm -hmm. 70s and into the 80s were, are really a dip uh, for the community. Right. Well, you know, so when I started the book, I I loved that you began with February House because I've read that. So February House, book by Cheryl Tippins. Oh, fantastic read, book. And Cheryl read, Tippins is yeah. a wonderful person. She just is truly a delight. Yeah, I read that book a number of years ago and I just, you know... I love a history with Carson the Colors and Auden and Gypsy Rose Lee and the Dollies. Like I, I just and they all live together in this sort of like communal home. And was it Prospect Park? Uh, no, it was actually in Brooklyn Heights, pretty close down Heights. to the water. Yeah, on Middle yeah. Street, which is now a playground uh, and an on ramp to the BQE uh, because of Robert Moses. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, they moved there, uh, I think it's 1940 or 41, uh, right around the start of World War II, uh, because this editor named George Davis, who had written a book in like 1929, but was now mostly famous as being an editor for Harper's Bazaar and connecting all of these really important uh, fiction writers and, and queer people, he had a dream. He said that he saw a vision of this house that he would move into, and he knew it was in Brooklyn. And he really was looking for a community, right? One that was queer, mm -hmm. but also literary. And Carson McCullers was a good friend of hers. And she was, you know, in a terrible marriage and queer. And he was like, oh, we'll move in together. We'll get you away from your husband. And uh, of course, they couldn't afford it on their own, though. So they brought in W.H. Auden, who had a little more money. And they managed to find this place in Brooklyn Heights, which was, a, you know, an old Tudor house that was kind of falling apart, but was really mm -hmm. amazing. 
and they were kind of ready to move in. But they still didn't have like enough money. They had enough to put down the deposit, but they needed to do a lot of repair. And then they also needed to you know, live in it. And so they got Gypsy Rose Lee to move in as well. And Gypsy and Carson became best friends. Yeah, And they spent all their time together. They would cuddle in bed together and uh, Carson would make gypsy apple torts from the apples that grew in the backyard. And um, they were really just a fabulous pair. Now, most Carson McCullough scholars, pretty much everyone I ever spoke to said nothing sexual happened between them. But I did talk to a gypsy Rose Lee scholar who was like, I don't know. I think that maybe something did. There's no proof, though. But they were certainly best friends inside of a queer community. Um, Gypsy Rose Lee's mother was a lesbian, and she certainly made a lot of jokes in her act about people suggesting that she was a female impersonator, and she connected her act to a lot of queer women in the theater, as we've discussed, you know, like uh, Eleanor Drews is name-checked in her um, act and all of this. So they were definitely embedded in a queer community, whether or not they were queer for one another, but I do like I mean, I couldn't think of a contemporary moment where it was that level of icons happening under one roof. <laughs> I was that's why I think I was oh, so drawn sorry. to it. Now I'm frozen. I have no idea what you just said. Oh, I I said I've I could not think of a contemporary moment where there was that many icons living under one roof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is one of those things. It's a game I like to play where I try to imagine like 40 years from now, what are people going to point to from what we're what's around us now? What seems like totally normal and kind of cool, but 40 years from now, people are going to be like, oh my God, all of these people were there. This, you know, one address or this theater or this institution. And, you know, I'm, I never guess right on these things, but it's always fun to imagine. Right. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I'm wondering if you found anything like that caught you off guard in your research for writing the book, like anything that was super surprising. I mean, a lot of things were very surprising. One of the very first things, honestly, was that in doing the initial research, so it's like 2011, I've just sort of thought about this idea. I don't even know I'm writing a book. I just wanted to know more about the history of Brooklyn. And I was like, well, let me just ask. I was working as a writer, as a freelance journalist, I was doing curation. So I just would ask people questions as I was talking about other things. Do you know anything about Queer Brooklyn, a book, a place, a year, anything, anything at all? Making little notes. And very quickly, I started to realize that when I, particularly when I was looking at the older history, that it was almost exclusively what people were discussing were white people. And that, mm-hmm. you know, happens whenever you look at history, right? That there is this just sort of like our history as a country is white supremacist and racist. Our archives are white supremacist and racist. It just is, is what it is. However, as someone who had studied a lot of queer history, this was more so, right? This was even more out of whack than general. And so the first question I asked myself was, what is going on here? Why are we seeing such extreme sort of white supremacy or, or whites only space in Brooklyn? And I discovered that it actually is that from the end of slavery in New York, which I think is uh, 1822, 1827, somewhere around there, mm-hmm. through the 1930s, Brooklyn was never less than 99% white. 99% white, right? I imagined mm-hmm. Brooklyn, when I first started doing this research, as being what it had been to Manhattan during the time I knew it, a space that was much more people of color than compared to Manhattan. And that is not true historically. 
historically, Brooklyn was actually much whiter than Manhattan and much more racist. And we can see this specifically in things like uh, around the time of the Civil War, there was a vote to give all Black men in New York State the right to vote, regardless of whether they owned the property. It fails, obviously. These laws just failed in New York State, unfortunately. But in Brooklyn, it fails spectacularly. It's like it gets like 32% of the vote statewide. And in Brooklyn, it gets like 16% of the vote, right? We have mm. proof, ways that we can point to. And now there were obviously people of color in Brooklyn at this time. There's an incredibly important neighborhood called Weeksville. It's an early black neighborhood that provides a real space of protection and nurturance for the black community in Brooklyn. When there are um, white supremacist riots in Manhattan, it provides a really important space for the black community. Uh, if you want to read a really great book that just came out, uh, Liberty by Caitlin Greenidge kind of tracks uh, that black community and some of what happens with these white supremacist riots and uh, has wonderful queer characters in it. So there is important black history in Brooklyn early on from the very beginning. Absolutely. But that does not negate, negate the fact that it is a white supremacist uh, space and a white space. And so that was one of the first things that I really surprised me in doing this research. It just wasn't something I knew about. And so from the very beginning, I, I've always thought, you know, that obviously this story, if you're telling the story of identity in any way, really, if you're telling any good history, you have to grapple with all other identities. But this told me that race and white supremacy had to be foundational to my story, because if I just focused on race, I would only be able to look at um, these very limited examples that have been preserved and saved of queer people of color in the 19th century in Brooklyn. But if you look at it as a story of white supremacy and how white supremacy creates queer culture and creates queer possibility, you have a much broader story you can tell. But it means that you have to implicate whiteness. You cannot leave whiteness as this undisturbed, unexplored category. You have to actually address the connections between, you know, the very eugenic doctors who defined what we now call lesbian and gay and transgender experience and their connections to white supremacy. And so that's a lot of what I tried to do in the book to sort of grapple with this question once I realized that I was looking at it. Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned that too with regards to like the complicated um, history of like race and queer literature with Walt Whitman. Yeah, you know, uh, Whitman was definitely someone who believed, you know, I sing the body electric, I believe in the possibility of everyone. And, and in his poetry, <laughs> right. he is a lot more liberatory and emancipatory than he is in his lived life, where he was shocked when women were interested in his poetry because he thought it was so much for men. And mm -hmm. he, you know, said offensive things about Black people, things that, you know, we would not definitely would see him canceled today. I think we see that you can have a liberatory mind and still act in racist ways. You know, there is no hard line between being racist and not being racist. It is something mm -hmm. that we all engage in every single day. Uh, and we see that very clearly with Whitman. Mm -hmm. Also, I clocked that fame reference <laughs> that I'll bet not a lot of people will. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you for calling uh, me gay. You know, <laughs> well, fame was one of the first community theater things that I ever did. <laughs> oh my God, is there tape? Can we see it? There's not a tape, but there is a photo from a newspaper clipping, I believe. And I had, I have like this sort of two-tone hair, like the sun in had sort of bleached the part, the middle part hair on the top. And then it was like my brownish, darker brownish color at the bottom. It's 
very tragic. So, when sun in, Fabulous. sun in. Yeah, I don't even know what that shit was made of, but I used to just paint my hair with it and it would turn it like a lovely lemon. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, where I'd are love you? To see that picture. <laughs> Yeah, I'll I'll have to I'll have to dig it up. I'll bet it's pro- I probably have it on Facebook. I've put it on Facebook at some <laughs> time. So where are you in the process with the um with your new book about women's prison? The, is it a women's prison or yes, it is particularly the women's house of detention, which is a prison slash jail. It held both populations. That was uh, construction started on it in 1929. It was at the intersection of. Pence and Greenwich. So where now today there's that library, the Jefferson Market right. Library with that beautiful um, clock tower and everything. That mm. was the courthouse. And the garden right next to it was an 11-story maximum security women's prison. It opened in 1932, closed in 1971, was torn down in 1974. It is, um, I think, you know, I'm obviously a little biased. I think an incredibly important story for the particulars of this particular prison, but also an examination about the ways in which all queer history is deeply imbricated with prison history. And particularly for queer women and transmasculine people, prisons are an important part of how queer culture has developed because so much of our uh, justice system when it comes to women emerges out of this 19th century moment where it was all about keeping women feminine and appropriate and demure. Uh, So my book is both a look at the women and trans masculine people who passed through this prison, the ways in which they recreated Greenwich Village as queer space, and also an argument for uh, abolition as an important part of queer politics. Mm. And as to where I'm in it right now, I actually am just finishing up the edits on the last couple of chapters. With any luck, it will be coming out in May of next year. Yay. I'll, I'll be very excited to read it. That's fascinating. It really is. Like I am very excited about it. I think that um, it brings together a lot of things that I've been wanting to write about for a while or have found frustrating or have seen connections between and have not been able to express. Uh, some of the stuff is just like, like, I don't know if you remember when the Stonewall Inn was landmarked uh, as you know, a natural, mm-hmm. national history. Things like 2016. So there's a big article in the New York Times about this happening. And they wrote in it that the Stonewall Rebellion was all gay men. And when there was a protest, they issued a correction that stated there was at least one lesbian involved. And I was like, that is the stingiest, most bullshit correction I have. I am still (laughs) mad about this to this day. Uh, And in doing this research, one of the things I was able to write a lot about was the way in which this prison was 500 feet from the Stonewall Inn. It was Mm -hmm. at the end of Christopher Street. People in the prison could see the uprising from their windows because the cells had windows and they participated in it. Uh, There are a number of women who have written about how they first understood that something was happening that night because they saw the women in the prison setting fire to their belongings and throwing them out the windows while Mm. chanting, gay rights, gay rights, gay rights. How is that not part of the story of Stonewall? How Mm. is it that that can be the most examined, most talked about moment in queer American history? And yet the New York Times can still write in 2016 that there was at least one lesbian involved, right? I think that looking at this prison, my hope is that it's going to help us reframe some of the 20th century queer history, particularly of New York, but just in general, to start looking at history that is not based around 
men, not based around white people, not based about respectability. Mm -hmm. And obviously that is already happening. Many, many people beyond me, like there are so many scholars whose work I have depended on in doing this. Uh, queer scholars like Joan Nessel, um, also uh, scholars whose work has nothing to do directly with queer people like Michelle Alexander. I mean, these are the people who have laid the mm -hmm. foundations that on which I am building, but my hope is that by presenting this through a queer lens, I can sort of bring it to the conversation about queer history generally in the 20th century. Mm. You know, no small goals here. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming and having a chat with me. I really love this conversation. And, and everybody go out and get this book on Brooklyn yeah. Blood Square. It's available in paperback all over the places you can get books. Oh, and if you like listening to me chat, you can hear me on the audio version. I read the whole thing. Speaking of which, I was in um, the Tattered Cover bookshop yesterday because I was on my way to see um, um, a, a wonderful queer movie, a new movie by Todd Stevens called Swan Song, and it stars Udo Kier, and I went to it last night, and honey, it affected me. <laughs> it's I... just... I'm so excited for that film. Uh, Todd is a friend of mine. He's a wonderful human. Oh. And that just looks amazing and wonderful and sad and beautiful. And Udo Kier, I mean. Yes. Udo fucking Kier, the subtle. And Jennifer Coolidge. Mm -hmm. Jennifer Coolidge has such a, a, just a subtle, delicious character. I mean, it's just, it's just really, it was really beautiful. It was such a beautiful oh, I film. I can't wait to see and it. So, but, but what I was going to say is that I saw your book. I was happy to see your book. In the tattered in the tattered bookstore, bookstore. Please tell was, them thank you for yeah, me. <laughs> yeah, and tell Todd Stevens that that his movie is quite beautiful and and beloved. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell him. I'll make sure. Thank you so much for having me on. This was yeah. Really thank fun. you it's very much. <laughs> yes. I hope the rest of your day is just as good. Thanks. Same to you. <laughs> Talk soon. Will you introduce yourself to our 20 million subscribers? <laughs> sure. Um, my name is Justin Taylor. Um, I'm a tarot reader. I'm an astrologer. I'm a full-time mystic, witch, woo-woo individual. Um, yeah, that's just what I am. Cool, what I do. cool. Yes. And you are the in-house, one of the in-house tarot queens at Ritual Craft in yes. Denver, Colorado. Yeah. Yes. Full-time witch at Ritual Craft. Very blessed to say that. <laughs> How long have you been there? I've been reading there for like over a year now. Um, but then I started working front of house, probably just like mm, for the past like eight months, seven months. Cool. Yeah. But it's a great time. What is the wildest thing that's happened to you since you've been working at Ritual Craft? We would be here for hours. Um, the cr every day oh. is something crazy. Um, reading wise, oh god. Okay, I feel like wait. I okay, I have a question. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. I was just gonna ask you. Can you like divulge reading sessions? Do you like follow some type of like HIPAA compliance? Like it's like therapy, like where you can't talk about the client, you can't talk about what's gone on in the session. Yes and no. Like there isn't like no. There's no legalities that I know of anyway <laughs> that were like I can't disclose things. Not like spiritual legalities. Yeah. No, like I do always try to be like 
respectful because we do I deal with a lot of sensitive situations. Mm-hmm. I always say that my job is I'm a social worker with candles. Um, I like that. <laughs> that's how we that's how I put it. Because uh, I always say like people when they come usually for not all the time, but 95 percent of the time people aren't here to see witchcraft or see witches because their life's going amazing. You know, it's the breakup. Mm-hmm. It's the divorce. It's the custody battle. The hardship Mm -hmm. like and if you think about you know even like historically like the witch the wise woman it was always last resort should hit the fan oh am i allowed to say shit on here oh god yeah okay this isn't disney plus you can can say shit fuck balls okay because i have the the worst mouth out it's free reign we're marked as explicit perfect (laughs) i've been marked that my whole life I love it. Yeah. So the wildest thing that's happened. Oh my god. Uh, re- like in a reading or like at the store? Just at the store. Okay. Oh, I had a girl on call us who was on acid and who wanted to Ooh. know if we could cast a spell on her over the phone to sober her up because like there was demons in her house and like all this crazy shit. Yeah, I love that. That was fun. <laughs> I've had demonic cats. I've had <sighs> people wanting. A lot of exorcisms over the phone. <laughs> over the phone. You never know what you're going to get when you pick up that stupid What thing. is that? Well, how does that go down? I've never done one. We okay. usually are like, just come into the shop or we can see how we can help. Mm. But with the acid girl, it's just like, call a friend, drink some water. I'm so sorry. I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's why I do not fuck with acid at all. Uh, yeah, I've had my moments. I feel like it was, yeah. There, the, my my times on LSD are quite rare now. Like it's maybe once a year, if and I haven't done any during the pandemic because there was like nothing, I, nothing. I didn't want anything to do with um, feeling or <laughs> any type of elevated experience during the pandemic. I just wanted to like shut down completely. I didn't want to. Yeah, it was too much. I was too sensitive to everything <laughs> like doing shrooms or some type of psychedelic was only could have probably tipped me over the edge. <laughs> I understand. That. I understand. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. You're a Pisces, right? Yeah. And what is your moon and rising? I Aquarius and then Aquarius moon and then Pisces rising. Oh, yeah. All right. Pisces rising, Pisces yeah. sun. Aquarius moon. Okay. Yeah. So very much so like the, I could see you being a hallucinogenic person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I kind of am like without psychedelics. Exactly. (laughs) You're just in the ethers at every point of the day, probably just naturally. Yeah. See, my Virgo moon self is too paranoid. I cannot, I have to be in somewhat of control at all times. That's why I cannot. Right. For anything that lasts that long. Oh my God. No. Um, are you know it's, it's really it's funny that well that you say control because immediately I thought about oh hi hey this podcast is called queer chaos but I myself as a person am not that chaotic in terms of like control and organization like my chaos is extraordinarily organized it's like the Marie Kondo of chaos like happening in my apartment like the other day I got up in the morning I was like I should invite more chaos in my life and what that entailed was not putting not arranging the pillows on the bed in the morning quite the same way oh my <laughs> like, god it's like that type of situation I like, it's no fucking wonder <laughs> that I'm like single oh see <laughs> just like everything has to be just 
perfection. <laughs> I am like, I'm a very chaotic person. I will totally admit that. But it's mm. all hidden. No one would ever suspect it about me. Right. Like, well, maybe they do. <laughs> but uh, I'm one of those people. It's like, I will, my entire house will look spotless. Like, my kitchen mm. looks beautiful. Everything looks amazing. But then, like, any things that people will not see, like my closet, you know, under my bed, right. like things like that, complete disaster. Under You push it under the rug. It's Always. Like sweeping under the rug. And now that I said that out loud, I do the same thing in reality with my real issues as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the mess you just saw, I just shoved it in a drawer somewhere and no one's going to talk about it. Yeah, well, we've all been there. <laughs> You're like, sorry, this is a podcast, not talk therapy. <laughs> well, hey, I feel like anymore talking to anybody is therapy for me. My therapist is on a six-week vacation. I'm like literally chomping at the bit. We're finally meeting again starting next week. I'm like, I need to start over with you because so much shit has happened in the past six yeah. weeks. I'm like, I feel like I've... Yeah, like I haven't had a therapist in six weeks. I'm like, do you know what it's like to have to go through this on your own? <laughs> like this therapy yes. session's going to be a mess. <laughs> See, I think that's so... I'm actually... I don't know if this is like podcast worthy, but I'm actually trying to find a therapist. Uh, I've never had... Well, I've never had one as an adult. And I always wonder, like, being witchy, I want to find a witchy therapist. And I'm fortunate to know some, but they're my friends. So I don't want to like hire them on because they're like yeah. I think they would blur things but I'm like how can I talk to like someone without getting like committed <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know like is your therapist like witchy no no and you just and you're like or do you have, do those kind of topics ever come up oh god yeah all the time and they're just like <gasps> I just can't yeah. I mean I it's part of my life so it comes in yeah. the room all the time <laughs> so what have you what have you brought oh my god i brought some tarot cards today um i know we wanted something like tarot-y and i was thinking like a fun mm -hmm. thought i would like i had was um to talk about cards that usually have like a bad reputation Ooh, bad reputation cards yeah like all the ones people are scared of you know like the three of swords the ten of swords the devil the tower Oh, yeah, yeah. All the ones, like, people do not want to actually really ever see. I mean, mm -hmm. I can stay here for hours talking about the suit of swords in general. That kind of does play into what we were talking to a little bit earlier, mm -hmm. actually. Now, swords are um, the element of air, right? Yes. Okay. Swords are the element of air. And uh, just a little fun, like, tarot thing I love to think about is, you know, astrology and tarot go very much so hand in hand. Um I actually, lo my love of astrology came through my love of tarot, which happened mm -hmm. first. And then I know he's like very controversial, but uh, I found one of the first tarot decks I ever found was the Thoth deck by Aleister Crowley. And okay. that entire deck is all... <laughs> that queen. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to be said there. But that aside, that just like that use of intermingling astrology with tarot was mm -hmm. very fascinating to me. And one of the things I always think about is just like, okay, you know, in uh, astrology, like air signs, it's all about the mental, you know, faculties. And in tarot, it's the same way. And that's why I think people are so scared of like swords cards because a sword is like the mind, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's what it's representing. At least that's the way I view it. And um, I know I read that somewhere. I'm not that deep. I know I just remember that correlation being made. And then that thought of like, 
your mind is also a weapon. You can either use it to protect yourself, to push yourself forward, to cut through the bullshit, or you can turn around and impale yourself. Mm-hmm. And usually swords come up when we are impaling ourselves or they represent, you know, depression, the mental illness, the isolation, the need for change, the bad perceptions of situations. Like mm-hmm. that is like what the suit of swords is. And I think what's scarier than what's in our own heads, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's why I think those get a bad rap for sure. Cut me off if I start rambling about this because I can go on for forever when it comes to the devil tarot card. Because the devil one, I think the devil and death are the two that freak people out the most. And I think, where's that stupid moon card? (laughs) Oh, let me see the moon card. Sure. Hold on, let me get my candle. (laughs) I know the lighting here is so ambient. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's really closing. It's, It's going from ambient to I just can't fucking see. Yeah, mm-hmm. this there's a lot going on in this moon card. You've yes, got this is. weird like stone portal thing happening, and then these these two wolves, and then of course like the body of water, like the subconscious. Yes, that is your card as a Pisces. Okay. Yeah. So the moon card. Is... I'm exhausted just looking at it. <laughs> yeah. It's so hard to figure out. But it's yeah. Well, the funny thing is, is is wo- wolves. Um, always show up for me. Really? In my dreams, when I do visualizations, like a wolf is always present. That's super cool. Yeah. Um, and always, and never in a in a threatening way, always like um, guiding me or a projection of some aspect of myself. Like it's, it's never a threat. Okay. All right. So I think one card that scares people the most, it's really fun, is the devil card. The devil card, here, I'll show it to you. Yeah, that's... See how you feel about it. This is not the traditional devil card. This deck, uh, traditionally, it's like the horns, like Baphomet, Pan-esque figure holding like the lovers, like the two, the man and the woman, the Adam and the Eve that you see like in the lovers card uh-huh. by chains around their necks. And that's usually what that card is. And this card, the reason why I wish people would like embrace it a little bit more mm-hmm. is because it's all about power dynamics. It's a, the card of Capricorn. If um, people weren't aware of that and it really, usually when it comes up, at least in my experience and understanding of it, it's always about like power struggles and addiction mm-hmm. and any time where you are in a weird push and pull with someone like in a weird Mm-hmm. Like, who's actually pulling the strings here? Who? What am I actually chained to and why? It's never, like, this, like, evil figure is coming to get me. You know, nothing like that. It's usually more so, like, if you were in a relationship, that wasn't really the best. Like, if you did, like, a love reading for someone, then you would know, like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. there might be, like, an unhealthy attachment here or a little bit of, like, this strained power struggle. Right. Well, um... Yeah, I'm. I'm always wondering how the when the devil shows up in tarot, um, how it's associated with Christianity, or does tarot, in a way, did the images in the tarot deck predate Christianity? I don't think they predate Christianity. I know tarot comes from. I think I think it's like Persian originally, like traveled through the Silk Road, and then right. it was originally like playing cards, 
And it had nothing to do with like the metaphysical. It was literally like the way we play like. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't even know. Rummy. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's not, it's not the devil of the God devil binary that shows up in like Judeo-Christian yeah. world. I wouldn't say so. I've always wondered that uh, too in a way because if there is a devil card, there's no like God card. You know, there was no like, Jesus card. There's, it's literally just the devil. And then the closest you have to like, an angel would be the art with like temperance or the art of judgment that both has like that more angelic like feel to it. But aside from that, most of the time that's like the only like negative looking or like demonic card mm-hmm. is the devil. But then again, it's just like, what's the real like demon here? What's the real thing that possesses us besides the things we can't control or can't control and that's why I love the artwork of this deck so much is because it's like all these like faces are like entangled in the devil itself, like kind of showing you like how it's all consuming and how you're trapped in something that maybe you weren't aware of. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I think it's a really, really cool one. And I wish that card would like get more like not bad uh, rap. Like even when you watch the craft, it's like the, one of the first things they show you is the devil tarot <laughs> card. And I'm like, no, it's not. Do that. Well, yeah. Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, if if the has the devil, could the devil show up in sort of a in a in a positive um, circumstance for someone that it gets pulled for, or could it be like could it be something that's like um, a welcomed a welcomed energy into that particular reading for that person? Yes and no. Um, I would always say like addiction and being consumed by something is not a good thing. Yeah. But that same kind of like, you know, in astrology, obviously, like Capricorn is like rich Saturn daddy, getting it done, mm-hmm. six figures, kind of like a Capricorn lifestyle is to be consumed. But usually it's by like money and want and like status. Not right. always, but that's what that energy presents itself as. Like this very yeah. serious, sophisticated thing. So when you're like doing like a career reading for someone, I've seen an aspects to it like, that you're going to be so consumed by this because you're going to be making so much money or you're going to like you're going to be so obsessed with the result mm-hmm. and maybe like take a step back and make time for you because you're going to burn yourself out but that could be like a positive when it's associated to like finances mm-hmm. for sure um i think that could be like a good money symbol right as anything with like the beauty capricorns beautiful capricorns do. <laughs> I guess where my mind was where my mind was going or what I was thinking was um the devil as sort of like a trickster character. So mm-hmm. maybe someone that's got maybe someone that's like wound really tightly or tries to control everything or everything needs to be a certain way or perfected. Like if the devil brings in a little bit of that trickstery energy that gives them a little bit more room for playfulness. Yes. I Exactly. I always look, I don't know, I always try to come from everything, especially with reading, not like in a love and light, like toxic positivity, gross Mm -hmm. way, but even like if someone drew like the shittiest cards and I have had like some pretty tough ones out there, like uh, I've had to tell people like a loved one was going to die before. Like I've been in really intense like Mm situations where there's no like mincing what I'm going to say but I always try to look at it as this is a tool to empower you to empower your life don't let it dictate take the information for what it is Mm -hmm. and then like change it you know it's constantly 
changing, by you sitting here, by you seeing to believe whatever I have to say, whatever resonates with you, it's going to be there somewhere and you might act on it or not, but you can always do it. So that's another reason why I don't believe in quote unquote negative tarot cards. Um, that's not always true, I guess, because there is times where there are situations where it's not the ability to change, but it can kind of prep you to be like, got it. This is now that I know that's going to happen and I'm kind of aware of it. If it like does end up being like not the best, mm -hmm. at least I can now brace myself to spin the narrative and have a different perception for when it comes. Right. But yeah, I always think like this is not tarot related at all, mm -hmm. but that's an, a huge thing where I think especially with astrology as of late, even though like I love Jimmy talking about Beyonce and Solange and their astrological placements. Oh yeah. But I don't know. I don't, I don't like when people blame things on this kind of stuff. They use it to uplift and enrich yourself. Don't give your power away. And I think people are way too willing to give their power away. Right. Kind of so they're saying that be they're saying that the reading, the cards, the reading itself is a direct like res they're like what's happened to them is a result of that reading rather than a hundred percent like a direct line, a direct cause and yeah oh oh a hundred percent. I think that's like a huge part of at least in, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but what what I do is I think reminding people of their power <laughs> outside of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But people are so. The amount of times people are like, someone cursed me because my, like, I'm getting evicted from my house and this and this and this. And like, mm. no one cursed you. You just didn't pay your rent for five months. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, come on. Yeah. You know, like, that had nothing to yeah. do. Like, that wasn't just like someone lit a black candle one night and then got you evicted. Like, there's mm -hmm. actionable steps that we're not accounting for that lead to something. Right. Well, you know, it's funny because I... From a chaos magic perspective, I was just thinking about how if someone's really narrating their story and really like clutching mm -hmm. into this like particular narration of their story, and then you go ahead and give them a spread, they're going to see the narration of that story and it's going to amplify it if if they choose to have it exactly. amplified um, in that way. And then... And then essentially, I almost think of the tarot card itself as like a symbol that's sort of being lodged into their, you know, into their subconscious. So they're going out and around the world and they're just actually making that narrative happen more and more and more and more. And then, and then thus their life turned out to be that way because they were really just doing all this work themselves to yes. make that happen. hundred percent self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> um, the way I don't even know where I read this. I've just, I don't know. I've, over the years, just gathered so much stuff and just different things resonate. But I love the way you put that because I think that's 100% true. I think tarot is like dreams. I think mm -hmm. it's all archetypal. You know, there's this, it's a figure. It's not, you know, uh, probably like a six-year-old would see that and be like, ooh, scary, like looking at a double card or know what the moon is or know what the sun, like, and what the, what you associate with that. Like you see a huge yellow sun and a little happy baby. You know, that's like, a happy card. You see mm -hmm. a bunch of swords going through skulls. You're like, mm, not the best. You know what I mean? It's like, it's very pictorial. Yeah. You know? Or if you were me as a kid, cool. Same. Yeah. <laughs> like I have a skull on every finger. I have like every Stephen King novel, like as a child. 100%. <laughs> like I used to watch Disney movies as a kid. And all I wanted, the only thing I wanted to be was Maleficent. That's the only thing I cared about. Yeah. 
Yeah. I just wanted to be like a witch summoning my powers from hell. Uh, yeah, yeah. But you know, you <laughs> just could... a little, just a little eternally goth. Always. <laughs> uh, for once, I'm not wearing all black, so I'm a fake goth today. Damn I it. know it's funny. I don't look goth, but it's on the inside. <laughs> the next little card, I think, that always deserve some love even though I know it's very what's the word stereotypical Mm -hmm. for me to bring this one up is the death card Mm -hmm. my it's well it's it's my second favorite tarot card ever but uh this one is so I'll let you see it in this deck because it's really super pretty uh this one is really cool because even though yes it is a little bit scary I absolutely love how it is always usually a positive omen. Because mm-hmm. um, it means just things are about to change. But it's always for the better. I mean, it's very rare that I've seen, like, the death card mean actual physical death or, like, something bad. Mm-hmm. Um, usually there's... Because, you know, the tarot is filled with so many cards. And there's other ones that I think speak more to, like, physical death or mourning or heartbreak than the death card does. Um, I always see it like as an usher of like positive changes on the forefront. I think that I don't know. I and I know no one no one likes change, but that one I is, do. I know. <laughs> I welcome it. <laughs> Same. You're a chaos I just put that together. So you're a chaos witch. Uh-huh. Ah. Yeah. Well, yeah, but 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 there are some traditionalist and pagan things that come through, some Norse mythology, some Greco-Roman myth. Like, I really it do combine it into yeah. more contemporary practices. Like, so I'm not just, I'm not the kind of, like, completely anti-dogma, get rid of everything from the past type of chaos person. No. Okay. That's super. I love it. I love when people make their practice around. Sorry, I just put that together. Yeah. But yes, like, I think that card is so cool because it's like an invocation of change. I actually think the tower card, uh, tower card is uh, way scarier than mm-hmm. the death card. Right. Because just like the, at least like the death card, I would say it's more like, it is rapid changes, but like nothing's more rapid or unexpected. Mm-hmm. And usually leads you more into a chaotic, like, unsafe or unsound situation than the Tower card. Right. The Tower card is, like, always that omen of, like, oh, God, you know, your house is, like, in a flood and you have to, like, find somewhere to live or something, like, really unexpected to nowhere, right. out of nowhere. Energy, that's why I think that, that makes that card way worse. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Are you an LGBTQ plus identified individual that has a humorous story of failure? Attempted a pandemic hobby that didn't go as planned? A witch whose spell brought unexpected results? Tried cooking a new dish for a dinner party that veered horribly off course? Queer Chaos Podcast wants to hear from you. At this show, we rally around the queer art of failure and experiments that didn't quite make it. Email your funny trips down the tried it lane to queerchaospodcast at gmail.com and your story might land right here on our little show. 
Please include a first name you'd like to be known by and the city town you're located in. We won't share any other information. We ain't trying to dox a bitch. And please, make it a story and not just the result. Like, my cat puked on my date. Queer Chaos is hosted and co-produced by me, John Malitris, and recorded at House of Pod in Denver, Colorado. Our podcast cover art was created by Evan Lorenzen, who you can find on the Instagrams at Art and Such Evan. That's A-R-T-A-N-D-S-U-C-H-E-V-A-N. Evan is also an amazing tattoo artist based in Denver, so check them out. You can find Queer Chaos on Instagram at Queer Chaos Podcast and online at QueerChaosPodcast.com. If you have some coins you can throw our way, we are on the Patreon, which is linked through our website, QueerChaosPodcast.com. Those coins go to monthly studio fees, website, and admin upkeep. And don't forget to send us your stories to QueerChaosPodcast at gmail.com. Until next show, embrace the queer chaos.